This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 50 The Original Jacobs. We had some talk about Captain Isaiah Sellers, now many years dead. He was a fine man, a high-minded man, and greatly respected both ashore and on the river. He was very tall, well-built, and handsome, and in his old age, as I remember him, his hair was as black as an Indian's, and his eye and hand were as strong and steady, and his nerve and judgment as firm and clear as anybody's, young or old, among the fraternity of pilots. He was the patriarch of the craft. He had been a keelboat pilot before the day of steamboats, and a steamboat pilot before any other steamboat pilot still surviving at the time I speak of had ever turned a wheel. Consequently his brethren held him in the sort of awe in which illustrious survivors of a bygone age are always held by their associates. He knew how he was regarded, and perhaps this fact added some trifle of stiffening to his natural dignity, which had been sufficiently stiff in its original state. He left a diary behind him, but apparently it did not date back to his first steamboat trip, which was said to be 1811, the year the first steamboat disturbed the waters of the Mississippi. At the time of his death, a correspondent of the St. Louis Republican culled the following items from the diary. In February 1825 he shipped on board the steamer Rambler at Florence, Alabama, and made, during that year, three trips to New Orleans and back, this on the General Carroll, between Nashville and New Orleans. It was during his stay on this boat that Captain Sellers introduced the tap of the bell as a signal to heave the lead, previous to which time it was the custom for the pilot to speak to the men below when soundings were wanted. The proximity of the forecastle to the pilot-house, no doubt, rendered this an easy matter, but how different on one of our palaces of the present day! In 1827 we find him on board the President, a boat of two hundred and eighty-five tons burden, and plying between Smithland and New Orleans. Thence he joined the Jubilee in 1828, and on this boat he did his first piloting in the St. Louis trade, his first watch extending from Herculaneum to St. Genevieve. On May 26, 1836, he completed and left Pittsburgh in charge of the steamer Prairie, a boat of four hundred tons, and the first steamer with a stateroom cabin ever seen at St. Louis. In 1857 he introduced the signal for meeting boats, and which has, with some slight change, been the universal custom of this day, in fact is rendered obligatory by act of Congress. As general items of river history we quote the following marginal notes from his general log. In March 1825 General Lafayette left New Orleans for St. Louis on the low-pressure steamer Natchez. In January 1828 twenty-one steamers left the New Orleans wharf to celebrate the occasion of General Jackson's visit to that city. In 1830 the North America made the run from New Orleans to Memphis in six days, best time on record to that date. It has since been made in two days and ten hours. In 1831 the Red River cut-off formed. 
In 1832, steamer Hudson made the run from White River to Helena, a distance of seventy-five miles, in twelve hours. This was the source of much talk and speculation among the parties directly interested. In 1839, Great Horseshoe Cut-Off formed. Up to the present time, a term of thirty-five years, we ascertain, by reference to the diary, he has made four hundred and sixty round-trips to New Orleans, which gives a distance of one million one hundred and four thousand miles, or an average of eighty-six miles a day. Whenever Captain Sellers approached a body of gossiping pilots, a chill fell there, and talking ceased. For this reason, whenever six pilots were gathered together, there would always be one or two newly-fledged ones in the lot, and the elder ones would be always showing off before these poor fellows, making them sorrowfully feel how callow they were, how recent their nobility, and how humble their degree, by talking largely and vaporously of old-time experiences on the river, always making it a point to date everything back as far as they could, so as to make the new men feel their newness to the sharpest degree possible, and envy the old stagers in the like degree. And how these complacent bald heads would swell, and brag, and lie, and date back ten, fifteen, twenty years, and how they did enjoy the effect produced upon the marveling and envying youngsters. And perhaps, just at this happy stage of the proceedings, the stately figure of Captain Isaiah Sellers, that real and only genuine son of antiquity, would drift solemnly into the midst. Imagine the size of the silence that would result on the instant, and imagine the feelings of those bald heads, and the exultation of their recent audience, when the ancient captain would begin to drop casual and indifferent remarks of a reminiscent nature, about islands that had disappeared, and cut-offs that had been made, a generation before the oldest bald head in the company had ever set his foot in a pilot-house. Many and many a time did this ancient mariner appear on the scene in the above fashion, and spread disaster and humiliation around him. If one might believe the pilots, he always dated his islands back to the misty dawn of river history, and he never used the same island twice, and never did he employ an island that still existed, or give one a name which anybody present was old enough to have heard of before. If you might believe the pilots, he was always conscientiously particular about little details. Never spoke of the state of Mississippi, for instance. No, he would say, when the state of Mississippi was where Arkansas now is, and would never speak of Louisiana or Missouri in a general way, and leave an incorrect impression on your mind. No, he would say, when Louisiana was up the river farther, or when Missouri was on the Illinois side. The old gentleman was not of literary turn or capacity, but he used to jot down brief paragraphs of plain practical information about the river, and sign them Mark Twain, and give them to the New Orleans Picayune. They related to the stage and condition of the river, and were accurate and valuable, and thus far they contained no poison. But in speaking of the stage of the river to-day, at a given point, the captain was pretty apt to drop in a little remark about this being the first time he had seen the water so high, or so low at that particular point, for forty-nine years. And now and then he would mention island so-and-so, 
and follow it in parenthesis with some such observation as disappeared in 1807, if I remember rightly. In these antique interjections lay poison and bitterness for the other old pilots, and they used to chafe the Mark Twain paragraphs with unsparing mockery. It so chanced that one of these paragraphs, footnote, the original M.S. of it, in the captain's own hand, has been sent to me from New Orleans. It reads as follows. Vicksburg, May 4, 1859. My opinion for the benefit of the citizens of New Orleans, the water is higher this far up than it has been since eight. My opinion is that the water will be feet deep in Canal Street before the first of next June. Mrs. Turner's plantation at the head of Big Black Island is all under water, and it has not been since 1815. I. Sellers. One of these paragraphs became the text for my first newspaper article. I burlesqued it broadly, very broadly, stringing my fantastics out to the extent of eight hundred or a thousand words. I was a cub at the time. I showed my performance to some pilots, and they eagerly rushed it into print in the New Orleans True Delta. It was a great pity, for it did nobody any worthy service, and it sent a pang deep into a good man's heart. There was no malice in my rubbish, but it laughed at the captain. It laughed at a man to whom such a thing was new and strange and dreadful. I did not know then, though I do now, that there is no suffering comparable with that which a private person feels when he is for the first time pilloried in print. Captain Sellers did me the honor to profoundly detest me from that day forth. When I say he did me the honor, I am not using empty words. It was a very real honor to be in the thoughts of so great a man as Captain Sellers, and I had wit enough to appreciate it and be proud of it. It was distinction to be loved by such a man, but it was a much greater distinction to be hated by him, because he loved scores of people, but he didn't sit up nights to hate anybody but me. He never printed another paragraph while he lived, and he never again signed Mark Twain to anything. At the time that the telegraph brought the news of his death, I was on the Pacific coast. I was a fresh new journalist, and needed a nom de guerre, so I confiscated the ancient mariner's discarded one, and have done my best to make it remain what it was in his hands, a sign and symbol and warrant that whatever is found in its company may be gambled on as being the petrified truth. How I have succeeded it would not be modest in me to say. The captain had an honorable pride in his profession, and an abiding love for it. He ordered his monument before he died, and kept it near him until he died. It stands over his grave now, in Bellefontaine Cemetery, St. Louis. It is his image, in marble, standing on duty at the pilot-wheel, and worthy to stand and confront criticism, for it represents a man who, in life, would have stayed there till he burned to a cinder, if duty required it. The finest thing we saw on our whole Mississippi trip we saw as we approached New Orleans in the steam-tug. This was the curving frontage of the Crescent City, lit up with the white glare of five miles of electric lights. It was a wonderful sight, and very beautiful. End of chapter 50